If you miss the vibe of Ecclesiastes, well, get prepared to be depressed all over again with the book of Jeremiah. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. Welcome, a reminder uh, to like, subscribe, comment, um, get some interaction out there, and if you have any questions, yeah, just throw it in the comments below. We'd love to hear them and interact with you guys. Brandon, what are we talking about today? Talk about Jeremiah. Ooh, Jeremiah, our second prophet book, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a big one. It's possibly the biggest. The biggest? It's the biggest. Yes, bigly. Yes. Yeah. I know Psalms has more chapters. Some of you are thinking in terms of chapters. In terms of words, yes. Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. And that's so what really matters, right? That was what makes it longest, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, welcome. So we're, how many videos are we going to do on this one? How many weeks well, are we, we in three. Jeremiah? We're three, doing three weeks in Jeremiah. It's yeah, going to be great. Three weeks in Jeremiah. So this is, I mean, Jeremiah is longer than all the minor prophets put together. Crazy. So it is, it is beefy. It sounds depressing is what it sounds like to me. It is de- it is depressing, yeah. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Mm. So sad. Who's weeping not, in the in the story? Well, the, the Jeremiah is. Yeah, about he's what? the weeping prophet. Oh. But why is he weeping? Yeah, because he's sad. What? I feel like these are trick questions. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. <laughs> They're softballs, Brandon. They're he's softballs. Very, very sad. He's a very sad guy. <laughs> so you're going to be sad too. We're. Yeah. I think. You know how many times has Israel messed up at this point? I think we're all going to be crying with Jeremiah. Yes, it's yes. Days without number, mm. I think, is the biblical. Sad, way sad. Of thinking of it, yeah. Oh my word. Okay, it's pretty bad. Well, we're in the prophetic literature. Let's do a little review on where we're at here in this genre of books. Yes. So, um, last four weeks we looked at Isaiah. I hope you had a fun time with that month of Isaiah. Oh, Isaiah's uh, great. We talked about so it. good. I mean, Isaiah is just unbelievable. Very encouraging. So Isaiah is what's kicking off these these prophetic books for us, and Isaiah takes place around the fall of the Northern Kingdom of Israel. Yeah. So um, the the con- they're conquered by Assyria. So Isaiah's prophecy sort of sets up for Jeremiah and the rest of the major prophets. Jeremiah is going to take place around the fall of the Southern Kingdom, yep. who's conquered by Babylon. Yep. And uh, they took a serious place as the world power at that point. And Jeremiah is going to go through some incredible suffering with God's people. And then the other major prophets will have Lamentations. That's actually written by Jeremiah. Yep. So it's kind of depression around three, um, Ezekiel will take place in exile and mm-hmm. Daniel will as well. Yeah. So kind of from different perspectives, but, uh, so we're kind of seeing a chronological order in yeah. terms of the books of the major prophets, yeah, that's awesome. but some of the minor prophets as we'll see are going to take place before these books and even influence Jeremiah. Right. So, um, but the prophetic literature, it's a lot of poetry, a lot of judgment, but also a lot of focus on future hope. Mm-hmm. So we saw some of those themes previously, but um, there's a lot of a lot of great stuff in the in the prophets. It is kind of hard to understand. Right. I, I like the narrative mm-hmm. that we were in for a long time because it is so straightforward. Right. It's sometimes hard to determine what the lesson is, whereas here the lesson's kind of a little more straightforward. But some of the imagery or some of the way things are said is just a little confusing. Right. So we won't go through every passage because it would take us ten years, but. We will, we will go through some of the, the main points and try to give you a structure to understand the book better. Yeah, no, that's great. And I will say congratulations to those who are still doing our Old Testament reading this year. Yeah. Or year-long Bible reading. Um, yeah, this is a, a part of the Bible that a lot of people stop their year-long Bible reading before they get to. So if you're still reading, good for you. If you stopped, you can jump in right now and continue right. reading. I feel, like, I feel like Isaiah and Jeremiah are kind of the last... 
really big mountains you have to climb. Yeah, Isaiah is is pretty tough, but it's there's so much familiar passage. There's many familiar passages in the in the book that I think kind of keeps you going. Jeremiah is a slog. It's a tough one, mm-hmm. especially the end of Jeremiah, and it's so easy to give up in the middle of Jeremiah. Um, Ezekiel is kind of that one last push. And then you have the minor prophets. And even though there's a lot of the same material, it just feels like you're making progress. Yeah. Where sometimes in Jeremiah, it just the chapters are really long too. So you're yeah. like, oh man, this is this is challenging. So so keep going and hopefully this will give you some of that incentive to keep moving forward as you go, oh, this actually means something. It makes yeah. sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and there's always hope, even if it's depressing and boring. There's little especially oh, yeah. even in Jeremiah, there's nuggets of profound beauty that is awesome and encouraging for the Christian today. So Yeah, and one of the most important passages we're going to see in Scripture, the New Covenant. Yeah. So it's going to be good. Exactly. So let's uh, get a little idea of uh, where we're at here. Um, do you want to talk about more what Jeremiah is about, or do you want to talk about things yeah. in the book? No, no let's, let's talk a little bit more. So I said it's he's the weeping prophet. Yeah. Really, so he's going to be, he's experiencing the exile, right? So it's he's seeing the unfaithfulness of Israel. He's going to experience the exile himself. Mm-hmm. He, he has a tragic end. The yeah. book sort of ends on a really down note. It's not like Isaiah where, well, Isaiah ends that last verse on a down note. But Isaiah seems much more hopeful. Mm-hmm. But um, so he's he's very sad, and of course he wrote a book called Lamentations. So that's also very sad, right. and he's a picture of God's sorrow over his people's sin. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that he's personally sad, as if that was the, the important thing. It's he represents God and his desire to see his people saved, right. yeah. and yet God is is mourning over their loss. Um, Jeremiah, his ministry starts in the reign of Josiah. We see that in the first verse, uh, first couple of verses of the, of the book. Um, so he starts, it's around uh, 627 BC is when he starts. Mm-hmm. And then it ends at the you know conquering of, of Judah. So around 587, right. 586 BC. So that's his ministry. So it's a pretty long ministry. Some people think, according to that chronology, he was about 12 years old when he started his ministry. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Prophet of the Lord, 12 years old. I mean, Samuel was even even smaller. I think even even younger. I understand why Israel didn't listen to him. Yeah, or I guess it's shame, Judah. Yeah, have you ever met any twelve year olds? I'll listen to them. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that's first. That's for sure. Some people think that the first verses, first verses, are talking about him as a baby. So and he was called into ministry later. Um, it's a, it's a little confusing, but we may never know. Say, we may never know. Well, no. we will someday. Well, we can ask him. Yeah, yeah. When be he's, sweet. he won't be weeping someday. <laughs> so we'll be, we'll be happy guy. Yes, that is true. Um, we see in the first verse, too, that Jeremiah is of the priestly line. Yeah. Uh, Ezekiel will be, too. So there's there's some interesting um, connections to the priesthood. His father is identified as Hilkiah, mm-hmm. which I know you're like, oh, big Hilkiah fan. Yeah. But if you if you don't remember, I'd look it up. But Hilkiah was the one who rediscovered the law. Ah uh, yes, in Josiah's time, or in, in yeah, Josiah's time. So he rediscovered Deuteronomy yeah. and brought it to their attention so that they could start obeying it. Ah uh, yes. So there's going to be lots of connections with Deuteronomy in this book. Makes sense. So so watch for that. Some some are very obvious, but overall, there's just a lot of connections with the ju- the cur- blessings and the curses sections mm-hmm. of Deuteronomy. Right. Mm-hmm. Th- this is how Israel's history is going to go. Remember, M- Moses laid the whole thing out. They're going to disobey. This is what God will bring upon them, right. and then he'll bring redemption. So Jeremiah is kind of showing that coming to its fruition. Very which cool. Is, which is rough. Awesome. Well, um, themes of this book, how, how they're connected in the greater you know, biblical theologies. Yeah, so we're yeah. going to see a big focus on the covenant, 
So kind of going yep. with the Deuteronomy awesome. thing, um, but also looking forward to the new covenant. Very cool. So Jeremiah is going to be saying again, again, don't think because you have God's covenant, because you have God's temple, that God's just going to take care of you and let you disobey him mm-hmm. and, and never punish you. No, there's going to be a punishment. And in fact, that's from the covenant. Right. So he's going to lean on the covenant to show that. Um, but how can, how can God actually redeem? So he's going to say, God's going to destroy you, but also God's going to redeem you. How can both be true? Mm-hmm. And so he's going, to, he's going to show that through the blessings and the curses, but also through the resolution in the new covenant. So the new covenant idea is huge in Deuteronomy. We're going to see, or sorry, in, in Jeremiah, it's, it's a big idea. We're going to see a big focus on God's word. Mm-hmm. So it kind, of, it kind of, as I was reading, it reminded me a lot of First and Second Kings, mm-hmm. as we were seeing the prophecy of Elijah and Elisha, and we were talking about how God's word shapes history. Mm-hmm. It's determining the course of the entire nation, not just the nation, but the nations. Right. And so as God speaks, things happen in history. Right. So that theme becomes clear in Jeremiah as well. Right. And there's some really, really famous verses about God's word and its power. Mm. So I'll try to point those out as they come along. There's also a, an emphasis on exile. Mm-hmm. So how yeah. do you live as an exile? So Jeremiah is going to set the people up for how to live in exile. Exile means they are taken away in chains to Babylon. So okay. how do you live as an exile? And that connects to us today as well. So All right. well, the New we'll Testament talks about that as well. Like, yeah, no. yeah. This whole idea that you you don't belong in this world. No. And for me, I've had to remind myself about that a lot recently because I, I get frustrated with the world, and then I go, Oh yeah, this is not my home. Yeah, I'm the weirdo here. Right. Not not the world for being the world. So yeah, it's a good word. And then we'll also see, of course, a lot about future hope connected yeah. with that new covenant idea. But what is the, the future hope that we can see uh, coming down the road? So yeah, I really like it in these books when you do get that. You know, obviously we get new covenant stuff in here. We get even just encouragement with coming out of exile, and you know, you know, just little threads of hope that you can kind of hang on in such you know a depressing kind of narrative. So. I like it. It's yeah, good. Absolutely. Tom. No, this, this is a great book. Yeah. <clears throat> Long, but yes, very good. So how's the structure of the book? So the book, out? so okay, so here's the thing. So every single person who proposes a structure of this book is so radically different because basically everyone agrees this is a incredibly hard book to put an outline to. Yeah. So some people put an outline that is so basic it's totally unhelpful. <laughs> Some do an outline that's actually somewhat more structured, but it's so complicated right. that it's also unhelpful. Mm. So as I was thinking of those two options, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to give a structure. I'll kind of give some highlights, and we'll see kind of how this goes. So highlights being chapter one, we see the call of Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. So that's a really important passage where he's sort of, well, I won't say who he, who he reminds you. You can just kind of think, who does this remind me of as, as we read it, Okay. And then in Jeremiah 2 and following, we see some of Jeremiah's message. Mm-hmm. Um, God kind of sets it up for him, and then he starts to, to proclaim that message to the Israelites. Mm-hmm. In chapter 29, a really key passage, we're going to see his letter to the exiles. Mm-hmm. This is super famous. That's where we get Jeremiah 29, 11, right? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, that yep. passage. But it's really a, a letter to the exiles of how to live in exile. So that's a key passage. And then sort of the heart of the book is chapters 30 to 33, yeah. and that's the New Covenant section. So that we'll focus a lot of time on there. And then the rest of the book essentially is the downfall of Jerusalem, the uh, sort of the downfall of Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. He, he has kind of a rough ending. 
and then it's a bunch of words of judgment to the nations and it kind of a somewhat surprise ending a glimmer of hope at the very end right so it's kind of it's kind of the opposite of Isaiah which is like all this beautiful stuff right. and in the very last verse it's like whoa judgment mm-hmm. this is like judgment at the very end you're like oh it could end up okay right so yeah so that's kind of the the, the, the as much as I want to get into the structure of the book yeah yeah, I, you know, part of the reason this is a fun fact. Part of the reason why this book is so hard to outline is because in the Septuagint, which if you don't know what this is, Septuagint is the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. So a bunch of Jewish scholars got together and they translated the the Old Testament into Greek mm-hmm. for those Jews who spoke Greek. The Septuagint translation of Jeremiah takes a huge chunk; it's like a dozen chapters mm-hmm. out of the book and places it somewhere different. So it's part. It's like even they. It seems like were very confused as to the structure and tried yeah. to kind of fix it. Well, isn't like I mean Jeremiah's just like a, a gathering of Jeremiah's like writings, right? That's what it seems like. Yeah, yeah. So, kind of a, a compilation. Yeah, maybe thematically organized sometimes in some yeah. sense. But yeah, it's it is very strange when you just read it through. One time. Like there are sections that are like, okay, this is some biography of Jeremiah. This yeah. this kind of makes sense, and there's prophecy, but it's hard to see how it's structured. Mm. Whereas other books are a little more obvious, so well, at least it's comforting to know that uh, people throughout the ages have had uh, trouble structuring this book. That's right. Yeah. yeah. If you're confused, then you're in good company. <laughs> Sweet. You want to get in the text? Let's do it. Yeah. Let's jump right in. I think that's the best thing we can do to see what's happening in this book. So, chapter one has the call of Jeremiah. The call of Jeremiah. Now, this has been a theme: God calling His prophets. Yeah. We've seen this a few times. So, just a couple times. Verse five. This is the the word of God. To Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Sounds a little bit like predestination. It's It could sound that way, right? It's he's Before he was born, God had already decided what he's going to do. Maybe maybe Moses, maybe God knew what Moses was going to choose anyway. And so just... This is Jeremiah. We're in Jeremiah. Excuse me. Jeremiah. But that's, that's funny you I'm say just that. Thinking of, I'm just thinking of older you prophets, that. you know? No, I, I totally agree. Um, no, I, I, yeah, it's like maybe, yeah, maybe God was like, Jeremiah's really going to want to be a really sad guy, and mm-hmm. he's going to want to be a prophet for me. Yeah, um, yeah it's it's almost <laughs> like it's almost like God did not consult Jeremiah or ask his opinion when he predestined him for this task. Yeah, very what does that rude. do to free will? Very rude. Very very insulting to my yeah preconception of free your, will. Your autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, maybe it's Friends. not quite what we think it is, but you guys can wrestle with that on your own time. But yeah, anyway, obviously, I mean, obviously, Jeremiah freely chooses to follow God, but Surely? that was predestined for him. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> so verse six, he responds by saying, "Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth." Hmm. Ironic, because he's literally speaking while he's saying this. Yeah, strange. But I think probably saying like public speaking. Yeah, like how can I, yeah, not good with my tongue or whatever. Yeah, I, I got I got bad words. Yeah, I do. I say that all the time. I can't talk. Yeah, come on. Exactly. Yeah. Verse 7, the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for all, to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. So God's going to empower him for this mission. God is with him. Hmm. That's key. And well, God is going to empower him. It reminds me of Paul, the New Testament. You know? Okay. Paul, yeah, a little bit. 
Well, Paul, just, you know, I'm going to tell you to go and do this thing. You know, yeah. you will go and preach to the Gentiles, whatever. Yeah, so. it, it reminds me a little bit of, of Paul. It reminds me more of someone else. Let's someone see. who you already said. So I thought you were oh. already way ahead of me here. Oh, but Mo- Moses? Yeah, Moses being like, God uh, yeah, calls him. Oh, I, I can't speak well, God. I don't. I can't speak good. And God <laughs> says, no, who formed the mouth? Yeah. Okay. Sounds That's like me, Moses, right? Yeah. This, is, this is Moses. And God's encouragement to Moses is also, I will be with you. Very good. I'll be with you. So that's my subconscious subconscious answering that question. That's right. Exactly. You knew it. And it also, I mean, it it reminds me a little bit of of Isaiah, the next verse, right? The Lord put his put out his hand and touched my mouth. Ah, the cold. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And then this is sort of a key verse for um, the book. Mm -hmm. Sort of a theme verse for the entire book. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Pretty sandy. So this is, so God's giving him his mission, Mm -hmm. which is summarized in these sort of pairs of words, right, these parallel words. And he's 12 years old right here? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Preteen, preteen Jeremiah, who knows? Um, But pluck up and break down. So he's he's saying this is to the nations and kingdoms. I'm going to pluck them up, break them down, destroy, overthrow, build, and plant. Yeah. So you have opposite ideas, right? Parallel opposite ideas. And that the what he's saying here essentially is, I got uh, Jeremiah. I'm going to use you to speak my word, mm-hmm. and, and in my word, I'm going to tear down b- kingdoms and build them up. Yeah, which is exactly what happens in this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and watch out for these exact words. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Watch out for watch out for pluck up, build and plant. Destroy. These are these are used over and over again. As I was as I'm going, I, every time I read through it, I, I notice more of these verbs being used. And I love this is why it's good to have a version that is a more literal translation, because even though it might be harder at first to understand, you're going to pick up on these words that are being used the same way. Yeah. If you do what's called a dynamic equivalence, where you take a phrase and you translate it, right? If I just translated that as, you know, Jeremiah, I'm going to use you to destroy kingdoms and to reestablish them. And I took out all those verbs yeah. that I would miss those throughout the book. Right. So, so the, the ESV is pretty good with this. It'll it'll translate those the same way in order to clue you in to when God's using that same idea. Great. Yep. So, so Jeremiah is going to be an influence to the entire world, a prophet to the nations to some degree. But of course, his main reference is is Israel. He's going to Israel first and foremost. So, mm-hmm. and then he gives him a couple of signs. Verse eleven. Jeremiah, God says, Jeremiah, what do you see? And verse, uh, and he says, I see an almond branch. <clears throat> and then verse twelve, the Lord said to me, "You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it." So the word almond and the word watch are like the same, same word or similar words, right? Shoked and shaked. Mm-hmm. Um, so similar sounds, just play on words. And the almond branch is one that blossoms very quickly. So God is going to act on His word very quickly. His word is powerful and his word will be fulfilled. That's mm. the idea. No. And then he has, in verse 13, he has a vision of a boiling pot. I love this imagery. Yeah, this is great. Yeah. And the judgment's going to come down from the north. Yep. So just imagine getting a boiling pot thrown in your face. Yeah, let's not think about that. That's not going to be pleasant. So it's a painful, ugly thing. So that's what's going to happen. Judgment is coming for Israel. It's coming from the north mm-hmm. because it's going to come from Babylon. Right. Really, all, all armies come from the north. Yeah. When they conquered Jerusalem, because that's really the only way to attack it. Kind of a different story for a different time, I guess. But 
that's what's going to happen. Uh, Babylon's going to come and destroy them. So hmm. that's chapter one. Chapter two, we start to see this this metaphor that was kind of hinted at a little bit in in Isaiah of Israel being married to God. Hmm. Yep. So that's a little bit, but it's really brought out in Hosea oh, yeah. and in Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. But it's also in these chapters of Jeremiah. This is a very prevalent metaphor. Now, Hosea was probably the first one to really develop it because mm-hmm. Hosea came before right. uh, Jeremiah. And Hosea, it's a great book. Um, it's a very interesting book. But Hosea is uh, is talking about this whole idea of God's marriage to Israel and their unfaithfulness. And actually, uh, I, uh, Hosea marries a prostitute mm-hmm. to demonstrate this. So... That's rough. The, 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 I always think, like, sorry, I'm going to get off track here, but there's a lot of, like, props or, like, signs, and I, I hear them compare in the, in the prophets, right? They, like, do these things that are kind of wacky, like Ezekiel, like, digs a hole through the wall mm-hmm. to, like, escape and stuff, yeah. uh, like, of his own house. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of pointless. But I always think, like, people say, like, yeah, this is why pastors should use props, you know? Now, I am pretty strongly anti-prop because... They're lame. It's just, it's that's the thing. It's not, there's no like necessarily deep philosophical thing here. I just think they're lame. If pastors did props like the prophets did props, I'd be super interested. Okay. Like, I'm going to, you sure know, run around, run around sermon. in my underwear like Isaiah did for three years. Exactly. That's like, you're committed to the prop. Yeah. You know, if you're going to lay on your side like Ezekiel did for months on end, mm. you're committed, man. Like, really make it work. <laughs> Go downtown, be homeless, lay there for for a year, you know? Anyway, just saying. But that's beside the point here. So the, the metaphor, though, is that Israel is God's bride. God, so, so the picture here is one of covenant, right? right? And love. This is the most intimate, precious relationship yeah, that you have. Yeah. Yes, and so so God has married himself to Israel. So verse 2 of chapter 2, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. So I, I married you. We had this relationship. Mm-hmm. But Israel abandoned God. So verse 5, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Right. Yeah, I was a little worried when the verse started in two. I remember your devotion as a youth. I really don't remember the devotion of Israel as far as as far as from the very beginning. They've been a little uh, wayward. Yeah, <laughs> couple couple days. Those like first thirty days when Moses was on the mountain. Yeah, maybe before they abandoned him completely. Yeah. So they abandoned God. They they you know had. Um, an affair, essentially, yep. right, and, and pursued something worthless. And the impact of that, the result of pursuing worthlessness, is that they become worthless. Right. And so this is just unthinkable. And God goes on to talk about this in some of the most extreme, it's some of the most powerful, I'd say, language in the Old Testament. Jeremiah two eleven, has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? Mm-hmm. So does it, do do nations typically do this? They typically abandon their god for a different god, and those gods aren't even real gods, right? Right? The Baals or the or whoever those aren't actual gods, and yet even nations don't abandon their own gods. Mm-hmm. But my people have changed their glory for that which is not profit. Mm-hmm. Be appalled, O heavens, at this! Be shocked! Be utterly desolate, because the Lord, for my people have committed two evils: they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns. 
that can hold no water. Hmm. So there's two images here. So he's, he's talking about to the, to the universe and saying, look at how appalling and, and horrible this is right. that my people would abandon me for something that is nothing. Right. And so the metaphor, the picture is living water. If you don't know what that means, I, w- I was always confused with this. No one ever explained to me when I was a kid that I can remember. It, this would have been so helpful. Living water. I thought it was some sort of like weird, you know, magical kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Like what is living water? It just, it just means flowing water. That's living, right? Yeah. Stagnant water is dead. Mm-hmm. It's nasty. It tends to get collect bad things. So living water is flowing. It's alive. Yeah, it's, it's fresh. No. It's, it's pure, right? It's, yeah. And, and cisterns, we saw these when we were in Israel, actually. Cisterns are these pits in the ground that they, that they dig out in order to collect rainwater. Hmm. And they, because of that, they, they're pretty nasty. They're not, it's not good water. It's disgusting. And he actually says, not even here, these are actually broken cisterns. They have leaks in them, so they don't even contain the water. Yeah. You just have mud. You just have muck left or, or dry dust even. And my people would rather drink from that would rather try to find satisfaction from something that has no way of satisfying them yeah. than turn to the obvious source of life and the source of living waters. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, there's a practical element of this too. It's like, or I should say, there's a practical observation of the stupidity of the people. You know, yeah. it's like you could have something so great and yet you choose something so horrible. That's practical, right? Yeah, so. absolutely. So it's, it is shocking and that imagery is so, is so stark and it's, not just applied, it shouldn't just be applied to Israel. It should be applied to us too. When we have God, we have access to words of life hmm. and we turn to falseness, we turn to lies of the world, we're doing the same thing. Right. right? We're abandoning a source of pure life and going to death. When we choose the pleasures of the world instead of the pleasures of God, we're yep. doing the same thing, right? Yep. So we have to see, see reality of this is what our sin is. Mm-hmm. Verse 21, this imagery comes back from Isaiah chapter 5. He says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Hmm. So that same vine imagery, he's saying, so he uses a lot of different pictures in this section of marriage, of you know, drinking water from a source that's impure, from being a vine that has totally turned away from its original purpose. And then verse 32, we see he goes back to that, that marriage metaphor. Verse 32 of chapter 2, Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Hmm. So can you, can you imagine the bride walking down the aisle in her wedding ceremony and saying, Oh, shoot, I'm in my pajamas still. Yeah. How, did I, how did I forget that one? Right. It, would, it's, it doesn't even make any sense. That's the idea. It's unbelievable. How could Israel forget what is most central to them? Yeah. Again, I get why, you know, this is a sad book. You know, it's kind of depressing. It's looking at, yeah, just kind of like laying bare the reality of where Israel's at. Yeah. I, I get what Jeremiah said. Oh, yeah. yeah. A lot, lot to be sad about. That's, that's for sure. And so he, he goes on to talk about this. So the, the unfaithfulness of Israel took place when they were worshiping false idols, right? So in chapter 3, verse 6, he, um, he says... Have you seen what she did, this, that faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? So the hills and the, and the trees, that's the idea of the high places. Mm-hmm. We saw that repeated a lot in the, yeah. in, the uh, prophetic, or in the historical books. 
the high places being the places where they worship either false idols or they worshiped Yahweh, but not in the way Yahweh commanded them. Right. So it's like, yeah, we're going to worship Yahweh on our own terms. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of the postmodern self-made religion. Yeah. And so he's condemning that as spiritual adultery. And then in verse 12, he shifts the metaphor a little bit. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. So he's talking about the marriage metaphor again, and he goes to calling them his children, and then he goes to essentially calling them his slaves if he's their master. Mm -hmm. So he's using all these metaphors to speak to the, the, the comprehensiveness of their relationship with him. Yeah. He's using every picture he can to say, this is why you should return to Yahweh. Yeah, there's a, there is a way of grace here, there's a, or there's opportunity of grace and a way back to God. It's not complete wrath, right? Yeah. So. Chapter 4, yeah, it starts off saying, if you return, O Israel, no. God wants them to return. Re- remove your detestable practices. Get mm-hmm. rid of these gods. Come back to me. Verse 2 says, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall find glory, mm. or shall they glory. And then he says in verse 3, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Israel. So verse 3, that sounds a lot like Hosea. We'll see that in Hosea 10. It's a very familiar verse, breaking up the fallow ground. Verse 4, though, this, is, this should be very familiar to those of you who have been following with us. Mm-hmm. Circumcise your hearts. That comes straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 10. Yep. And, and it happens, I think, a few times, Deuteronomy, this circumcising your heart. And we talked about that, cutting off the flesh, right? Cutting off, making yourself pure. Mm-hmm. Performing heart surgery is the idea. And the question, of course, that we have to keep asking is how? How could somebody circumcise their heart? How could someone perform heart surgery, open heart surgery on themselves? Right. And especially in the spiritual sense. Right. It's unthinkable. So there's there's something that they have to do. They have to to change their hearts, purify their hearts in a way that they can't do. So Jeremiah is mourning in chapter four. Um, we see in verse nineteen, this, in the section that follows, he's mourning, weeping for Israel and how evil they've become. Right? He says in verse twenty two, "My people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil." Right. But how to do good, they know not. So it, things are very bad. So the result of that is going to be complete destruction and judgment. So mm-hmm. verse 23, tell me tell me what, what this is saying, okay? Okay. This is the million-dollar question here. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. Mm. What does that sound like? Genesis. Genesis 1, 2, right? And the heavens had no light. So he, he goes on to talk about... This uncreation picture that God is dismantling, destroying the universe, returning it back to its pre-creation state. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's talking about complete judgment again. Yeah, start start over. So there is hope, though. God gives him a chance to, to find hope. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Go through the streets of Jerusalem and find just one man, just one man <laughs> who does justice and seeks truth that I may pardon her. Now, this reminded me of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. 
right? Where Abraham in Genesis 18 yeah, is pleading with God. Yeah, yeah, going, going, you know, if there's 50 people in Sodom that are that are righteous, will you save it? And then all the way down to 10. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, what if he had said one? Would God have done that? And <laughs> and that's, you know, a picture for us, a reminder for us that one righteous person can save the multitude. Yeah. And here you actually see mm, that one, one person, person saves the multitude. Yeah, who could? Hmm, interesting. Hmm. That can't be significant. Yeah. No. Um, but but here God is actually saying, just find me one, just one righteous person. Jeremiah, can you do it? And the answer, of course, is no. There's <laughs> not one righteous person. There's not one upstanding person in the entire society that can stand in the gap for the people and save them. Hmm. And so they're they're in trouble. Um, verse 14, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. So God's, again, this is a picture of the power of God's word. So Jeremiah, he's saying to Jeremiah, your word is going to be my word, which is fire, mm-hmm. but that fire is not going to be helpful for this people because right. they're wood. Hmm. So it's going to consume them. It's going to destroy them. So we see this, this picture that God's word accomplishes something. In this case, it's not going to be going to be good. Verse nineteen is also an interesting verse he, in chapter chapter five. He says, "As you as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours." So this is always the problem. They're serving foreign gods. Then he says, "Oh, you want to serve foreigners? Then you should serve some foreigners. Go, yeah, go it's to kind a of giving land. people over to their sin." Well, yeah, well. exactly. So pretty, pretty depressing, like we said. Um, so chapter, chapter six, we, we can move on a little here. Um, he starts. To, he's criticizing, and this happens throughout. He's criticizing their leadership in verse thirteen, chapter six, verse thirteen. From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Oh. So prophet, priest, later we'll see kings as well being criticized because of their terrible leadership. Yeah. And, and the, the words they speak to the people is very significant. Verse 14, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, <laughs> when there is no peace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, peace and safety, that's the theme we'll see later on in Scripture too, yeah. right? That these, these prophets and teachers are proclaiming what people want to hear. Yeah. Huge theme in the book of Jeremiah and the prophets as well. So you don't trust in that. You don't trust in something that's just what you want to hear. Where should you go? Where should you look? Well, verse 16 tells us, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Mm. But they said, We will not walk in it. That's that's such a great, and again, iconic verse about Scripture, right? Look for the ancient paths. Go back to the the truths that have proven themselves over time. Mm -hmm. Don't forget, when Jeremiah is writing, he's, you know, what, 800 years after, or 700 years after, uh, yeah, about 800, I guess, after Moses. Mm -hmm. About 800 years after Moses. He's 100 years after Isaiah, even. Yeah. So Isaiah would be like, I don't know, turn of the century for us. Right, I mean, yeah. this is this is a long time ago. So he's saying, go back to what God has done over time, how God has proven His faithfulness. Go back and trust in that. Yeah. Don't trust in someone just because their words sound good. Right, and and just I mean, that's how we should look at anytime someone gets up to speak uh, for you know at church or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't care what they say and how nice it is. I care if it lines up with God's word. Right. If it doesn't line up with God's word, I throw it all out. <laughs> that's it's very cut and dried for us. God's word is is the the plumb line. It's how we test these things. 
So verse seven, kind of, or sorry, chapter seven, kind of brings up this this idea, as I mentioned, of the people's belief that because they were part of the covenant people Mm -hmm. and because they had a temple, it was a sign to them that God was on their side, that God was fighting for them, was going to protect them. Yeah. And here and they could like live however they wanted. Exactly, they yeah. can do whatever they want because no. look, we have we have security. And so right. Jeremiah's temple sermon in chapter seven is going to challenge that a lot. Yeah. So he he talks about in verse uh, three, he says you gotta you gotta fix your ways, you gotta yep. do the right thing. In verse four, he says don't trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. This yep. is their sort of their rhyme. Yep. It's not a very creative rhyme, but. <laughs> Look, we have this threefold repetition. We have the temple. We have the temple. We have the temple, right? This is what we can bank on. And God says, uh, no, you need to obey me. Mm-hmm. You need to repent of your sins. And I'm going to tear down the temple as well. Yeah. Verse 11, he, he points out how bad things have gotten. Oh, yeah, this probably did. rings a bell. That's crazy. He's like... You commit adultery, you murder, you swear falsely, you do all these things, you worship other gods, and then you come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> we're good. Yeah. Oh, we did all those bad things. We're going to keep doing those bad things. But <laughs> no, we, we, we got God go, fighting for us. Right? Verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers mm-hmm. in your eyes? Yep. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. That, that's a familiar verse. Yeah. That'll, that'll come back later. It's a very important verse. So he says... Go to Shiloh, verse 12, right? Look at Shiloh where the, the tabernacle was and how I put judgment there before. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do the same thing to this place right now. Verse 14, Therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place I gave to you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight. So judgment's going to come. The temple will be lost. Do not put your hope in something that is outwardly physical. You have to actually obey God. Right. Now, Jeremiah has been this prophet that just like Moses is appointed, he has a similar calling. So the question is, you know, and he's, he's interceding for the people. So the question is, will his calling be like Moses? Is he going to deliver them mm-hmm. from their enemy as Moses did? And the answer is we're going to see throughout progressively is no. Yeah, he's, he's kind of, I think, I just kind of made this up, so maybe it's wrong, but I kind of think he's like an anti-Moses. Interesting. Not that he's like a bad person, but that he's essentially going to do the exact opposite of what Moses did. His ministry is going to lead to the exact opposite, not mm-hmm. because of his sin, because of their sin. Right. So one thing is that God actually tells him in verse 16, listen, listen to this, right? So remember how Moses was always interceding for the people mm-hmm. and was always asking God, don't destroy them. Don't, you know, don't wipe them out and make me your new nation. Save yeah. your people. Right. Well, verse 16, God says, as for you, do not pray for this people. Yeah. Or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. So this is going to be repeated. Well, I'll mention it a few times. This is repeated. Do not intercede. Do not try to save this people, Hmm. um, because I'm not going to hear you. That's that's new, right? And that's extreme. If there is no mediator for the people, the people have no hope, right? But at this point, at least for this period of time, God wants them to have no hope. Right. He wants them destroyed and taken out of the land. Well, it's not like God has not given Israel opportunity after opportunity, right? It's not unjust yeah. on God's part. And, I mean, it's the thing that Israel is doing right here is the same thing even Christians today do, or professing Christians anyway. Mm-hmm. They say, yeah, I've been, you know, I've prayed a prayer. Yeah. I've said yes to Jesus, and yet my life doesn't look any different. My heart doesn't look any different, right? Yeah. So, 
But yeah, but the prayer, the prayer, the prayer. It's yeah. it's uh, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. yeah, I don't have to worry about anything. I can I can totally disregard God. In fact, I can even abuse His Word mm-hmm. and try to make it justify my lifestyle. Yeah, and I'm going to be good because Jesus loves me. Yeah, yeah. Based on what? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. You don't you don't follow God's word. You don't care about His word. You reject everything, but you want to claim Him for your for yourself. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. So yeah, these words are good for us to help us wake up. Mm-hmm. You know what else helps us wake up? The Valley of Hinnom. Mm-hmm. The Valley of Hinnom, yes. chapter seven. This is very important. So what happens? So there's a section here. So starting in verse thirty, he's he's talking about how he's going to destroy them. And how they had built these high places in this in this valley, the Valley of Hinnom is is south of Israel. Now, there's some interesting things here, okay? And I'm I'm going to disagree with a lot of what maybe you've heard if you've been in the church for a while, okay? So Gehenna was a place, as we see in this section, where they had offered their children in sacrifice. It's called the Valley of Slaughter. Mm-hmm. So they had done child sacrifices there. They had performed these horrible abominations. And so God says... I don't think child sacrifices, you know, in the law. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think we can do child sacrifice. It's Mm. fine. Yeah, weird. Israel's really bad right now. Yeah, this is is pretty awful. (laughs) Yeah, this is is like peak wickedness, right? We saw this with uh, Manasseh Mm. offering his son. This is... There's no return. Yeah. So they're offering their children and... God says essentially, I'm going to offer you in this in this valley. You're going to be slaughtered in this valley. So this valley will be a picture of judgment. Now, some people will tell you that Gehenna, so Valley of Hinnom mm-hmm. in Greek or Aramaic, I don't know, Gehenna, I think Greek. Sounds Greek. Yeah, I think Greek. I should, really should know that. Um, Gehenna is was a place of where it was a dump. Have you heard this before? So Gehenna was a, a dump. So this valley south of, of Israel, they would dump all their their refuse there, and they would have a fire to burn their garbage. And it right. was like a round-the-clock continual fire burning their garbage. This is like, I, I think it's like patently insane. <laughs> and maybe it's just because I live in California. Maybe it's just because I live in the year 2021. But... Israel has a similar climate. It's a Mediterranean climate, so it's similar to California. So mm-hmm. if you live in California, our climate is really similar. Um, some of the terrain, well, it's not really that similar terrain, but they actually they have different climates, right? They have the hills, we have that. They have the valleys, we have that. They have similar the feel. coast, right? So yeah. there's a lot, a lot of similarities. Um, if you were to have a continual fire burning in California in, I don't know, early fall, mm-hmm. What would happen? Fires. It, you would burn down the entire country. <laughs> you, you you can't do that, right? You can't just have an out of control, constantly burning fire, <laughs> sending ash and, and sparks everywhere. So this whole idea, and, and I had one of my professors point this out to me when I was in, in Israel. He pointed this out. This this really seems like kind of a It's been passed down quite a bit. Yeah. There is some historical arguments for it. I get it. I don't think that's what's happening here. Hmm. The reason why Gehenna... In the, in the New Testament, becomes synonymous with hell. That's the connection. Gehenna is what's referred to as hell in the New Testament. The reason why there's the connection is not because of there's some sort of ongoing fire there, but because of this passage. This sort of sets the groundwork for the, the, the understanding of hell. Hmm. You've already seen hell a little bit uh, prefigured in Isaiah, mm-hmm. this place where their worm does not die, the fire is not quenched, right? right. 
here we see a picture of how it gets that name. No. The place where they receive the penalty for their sins, where their bodies, so where they're killed and their bodies are burned. Right. That's the picture of, of hell. It's a place of judgment. So anyway, so that's just my little rant. The more I've thought about that, the more I think it is kind of crazy. But who <laughs> knows? I could be wrong. You could... You can comment. You can share your favorite article of uh, why it's why it actually was a an ongoing blazing inferno in the one of the driest places. Anyway, um, so that so we see that picture of hell. Very important passage there as well. Chapter eight, eighteen through no, chapter nine. Jeremiah is weeping. Um, yeah. Just some some really intense Let's language. Go back and look at that language with you know. Oh yeah. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be referred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family. Yeah. That's yeah. strong. Exactly. Yeah, the the dead bodies of the people will be food for the birds of the air. So this this picture we had of, you know, in Deuteronomy of you got to bury the bodies hmm. so that the curse isn't taken over the land. No, this this is just a place of absolute cursed. Yeah. No one cares about these bodies. No no one fights for them. Right. It's ugly. Yep. Super ugly. So chapter so because of all this sadness, Jeremiah is weeping. Yeah. End of chapter eight through chapter nine. I mean, look at chapter nine one. Oh, that my head worked waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Mm. Um, Jeremiah is incredibly sad by what's happening, and that's the proper response of the righteous. Right. The uh, people that are righteous mourn the evil that we live in. Mm. Um, I always think of Psalm one nineteen as well. Right where it talks about this, right that this idea of mourning because people don't keep God's law, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, so we see that, and then chapter ten, which is we're gonna this will be our last section here for this for this uh, podcast. But chapter ten, we see these attacks that God has on idols and idolatry, which again has been a the theme in the in the prophets. There, verse five, chapter ten, verse five. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. Oh, that's a good picture. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. But then the contrast with God. So these idols are powerless. They're pathetic. They're laughable, as we've seen so much. But the contrast with God is verse 6. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. Your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. So he goes on to talk about how great God is. Verse 10, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting king. Mm. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and his nations, the nations cannot endure his indignation. Just some powerful, beautiful words about who God is. Verse 16, again, this contrast with idols. Idols are worthless, but verse 16, not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. Mm. For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Hmm. So the idols are nothing. They've, they've brought Israel to nothing. They've right. made them worthless. And God is the one who is powerful. So turn to him. Yeah. So we'll stop there. We have a lot more to cover the next couple of weeks in Jeremiah, but that's a good place to stop. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're going to get definitely more, you know, uh, New Testament gospel connection as we get through Jeremiah. But what do we see so far? Yeah. Well, we see we saw that um, important connections here, important gospel connections. One it, that stood out that we mentioned is Jeremiah seven eleven, mm-hmm. where he talks about the temple. I claim the temple. That it's a den of den of thieves. This is obviously quoted by Jesus when he cleanses the temple. Yeah. So we see it, you know, in in uh, I think all the gospels he cleanses the temple. I could be wrong. 
John, John chapter 2, yeah. and the other Gospels, I believe, as well. He cleanses the temple, um, and he quotes the same verse, saying that this is true in his day as well, that they're still living the same kind of way. They haven't changed. They're going to need a new temple. That's the idea. In fact, they need the true temple, mm-hmm. which is not a temple built by hands. The connecting point between God and man is not a location built by men. It is Jesus Christ himself. It right. is God in the flesh come to mediate, to intercede between God and man, right. to do what Jeremiah couldn't do mm-hmm. because of his own sinfulness, the people's sinfulness. Jesus can do it. He's powerful enough to do that. Yeah. So, so we see that picture fulfilled. And the other one that stood out for me was obviously this idea of circumcision of the heart. Mm-hmm. So we, we see this a lot in, the, in Romans, Romans chapter 2, where he basically says, <clears throat> circumcision, the circumcision that you need has always been one of the heart. That's mm-hmm. always been the point. Right. You need to cut off the old man and, and, and be made new by God. You need God to perform heart surgery. Right. So we see this in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit and not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Right. So God has to be the one who can change the heart, and we're going to see more about that in the next couple of weeks as we get to the New Covenant, yeah. which will focus on how is God going to help Israel to be obedient, empower yeah. them to be obedient by changing their hearts. Yeah, that's great. One I just thought of was Nicodemus, which he's saying you got to be born again too. Absolutely. Like you see, obviously we've seen hints of God calling his prophets here by his, by his powerful decree, you know. But obviously just the inability for us to save ourselves, like we need God in order to transform us into beings that can actually be obedient, you know. Amen. That's right. So, awesome. Well, thanks for joining us for Daily Gospel. We'll see you next week as we continue through Jeremiah.